0: Hello and welcome to the SRNA Ask the Expert podcast series. This podcast is titled Acute Treatments and Rare Neuroimmune Disorders. My name is Chrissy Dilger and I moderated this podcast. SRNA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at WeAreSRNA.org. Our 2023 Ask the Expert podcast series is sponsored in part by Amgen, Alexion, AstraZeneca rare disease, and UCB. For this podcast, I was joined by Drs. John Chen and Elias Satirchos. Dr. Chen is a neuroophthalmologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Satirchos is a neurologist and an assistant professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. You can view their full bios in the podcast description. Welcome, and thank you both for joining me today. Can we begin just by explaining what acute treatments are and what the word acute means? Dr. Chen, if you'd like to start.
1: Yeah, so in terms of acute treatments I'm talking about, I think you're assuming for an acute demyelinating attack like optic neuritis, transverse myelitis, And so typically it's going to, we're going to start off with high dose corticosteroids. The most commonly would be intravenous methylprednisolone, a thousand milligrams over three, over three to five days. Or another option would be super high dose oral prednisone, 1,250 milligrams of prednisone. And these are, we're talking about 50 milligram tablets. So that's 25 pills at once. And so that's kind of the acute treatment. When you have a patient with a transverse myelitis or an optic neuritis, we're trying to decrease inflammation. And then if a patient doesn't respond, then some typical things we can do are plasma exchange or less commonly IVIG. And so these are some other treatments. And there's been a lot of literature, mostly retrospective studies, suggesting that early steroids or early plasma exchange leads to better outcomes with these acute attacks of mind disease. And certainly something we need to explore in more detail. Dr. Soterikos, any thoughts on your end?
2: No, I think that you you covered all the all the options. Excellent. I think that there are gonna be a further questions about how to use these and how to implement them and how to escalate potentially from one to the other.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So so those are the the main ones used after an inflammatory attack but you mentioned the steroids are are typically the first the first step. So Dr. Satirkos can you explain how steroids work in these disorders?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. So corticosteroids which are what we use here and we use them at very high doses. So these doses that are used are much higher than kind of typical oral prednisone or low dose corticosteroids that people might receive for things like eczema or other indications. And so these are very, very high doses through the IV. And they actually act by many, many different ways. Here, we're administering them specifically for their actions on the immune system. So corticosteroids, our body, by the way, normally makes corticosteroids or adrenal glands make corticosteroids and people have a level that an increase with stress or other responses. And it varies actually throughout the day with our circadian rhythm. But these doses that we're giving are on the order of a hundred times or more than what our adrenal glands are normally kind of making. And the goal here is that the corticosteroids can go and switch off or on different kind of pathways within inflammatory cells that are the culprits of this inflammation that is going on and causing these attacks. And it can turn a lot of these inflammatory pathways off, so it's stopping the cells from releasing various kinds of molecules that recruit other inflammatory cells to the site of inflammation It actually kills some inflammatory cells, causing, activating something called apoptosis, which leads to cell death of types of white, various types of white blood cells that can be active in that area. And one other thing that's important about corticosteroids is that with these super high doses and just with. The way that corticosteroids can diffuse themselves throughout the body, they cross into the brain and into the spinal cord or optic nerve very nicely. So there's something called the blood-brain barrier that kind of seals off the brain and parts of the central nervous system. And steroids are able to easily kind of diffuse through that and to get to the site where we want them to go and have that and have their exert their
1: action. Okay.
0: And Dr. Chen, anything to add?
1: No, I think that's again a great uh, explanation for it. Um, with the ONTT, the optic Nourish treatment trial completed way back in you know 1980. It essentially, they they looked at high dose IV methylprednisolone, and and Elias was saying you know we're talking about 100 fold more in physiologic They compared to placebo. So essentially, just pills with nothing, and they also compared to kind of low-dose oral prednisone, We're talking about 80 milligrams or one milligram per kilogram. And it's really the high dose that tends to have the benefit as opposed to a lower dose at 80 milligrams, which is still pretty high. That's going to be much more than you do for, you know, things like eczema. It's not enough. You want these mega high doses of the steroids for the acute treatment. Uh,
0: got it. You mentioned these steroids are usually administered through IV, correct? What is the difference between is the IV versus oral steroids? Is there a benefit to IV steroids over oral steroids, or can you expand on that, uh, Doctor? Yeah,
1: Tim. absolutely. Again, initially we thought intravenous IV was the way to go because of the ONTT. Again, finished back in 1990s or 1990. But what we found out is it's not the route, it's actually the dose that matters. So there's been some recent clinical trials comparing a thousand milligrams IV to the oral equivalent prednisone, which is a thousand two hundred and fifty milligrams of oral prednisone, and there is no difference. So it's it's the dose, the mega dose versus the route. The advantage of the IV is it's it's through an IV, very easy to administer, but you do need either an infusion center or some kind of mechanism to do that. The benefit of the prednisone is you could do that at home. The, again, the large disadvantage of the prednisone is, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest tablet we've got is 50 milligram tablets. That's 25 pills you're taking all at once. So that can be hard on patients, can be hard on the stomach, that kind of deal.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned hard on the stomach. So what, what other side effects, if any, are there from and the acute setting, uh, tr- treatment of steroids. Um, Doctor, if you want. Yeah.
2: So, steroids. Steroids have a lot of potential side effects. Most of these kind of are more with long-term administration or repeated courses of steroids. Generally, for the short, at least the short courses that are using acute relapse, they're relatively safe. Steroids overall, in terms of the risks associated with them, so they are somewhat immunosuppressive, of course, because they are eliminating inflammatory cells, so they can predispose to a higher risk of infection, especially with long-term use, so that's one. Otherwise, steroids can increase kind of breakdown of bone, and so they can lead to, this is more of a long-term issue, to bone loss. Although sometimes with super high doses, especially in people who might be predisposed who are elderly or have osteopenia or a baseline, that can lead to to issues related to that. Other issues that steroids can cause is the stomach irritation. That's why typically steroids are administered with a um, acid suppression medication because they can otherwise lead potentially to ulcers in the stomach and, and gastric irritation otherwise. Others are, especially with the high doses, the acute phase, but also with lower doses long-term, they can um, lead to dysregulation of blood of glucose, so uh, blood sugars. And so especially in people who have a pre-existing history of diabetes or diabetes, and they're already on medications, they can be sometimes very challenging because when you start with very, very high-dose steroids, that can lead to significant spikes in the blood sugar and often these patients will need to be monitored and administered more insulin than they would usually take, or or insulin even if they weren't on it previously, just in order to settle down the blood sugar. From that perspective, otherwise, long-term administration can also lead to cataracts in the eyes as well. Again, a lot of these are more mostly concerns with kind of long-term administration. That's why we generally do not use steroids as much outside of relapses, especially the super high doses. We only do those for a few days at a time because of all of these side effects. And then afterwards, we try to get people, on, if there's an indication for it, on some sort of long-term steroid-sparing medication that can take the place of steroids, but may have a more acceptable long-term side effect profile.
0: Thank you. I am sure that's a, a good consideration for people to have Especially in the long-term setting, but it it seems like in the short-term setting, it's it seems quite safe.
1: Usually safe. Again, there's some of these impossible to predict side effects that can happen with medications, with any medication. But you know, with steroids, you can even have strokes to the bones of your hips. But again, these are super rare, but impossible to predict. Overall, we still think that the benefit outweighs the risk. Uh, But we always talk about potential risk anytime we talk about treatments.
0: Great, thank you. So after steroids, what would be the next step? Would you evaluate if they're working or not? Can you just explain as a clinician what you what you look for when you're giving those steroids to see what, what you're gonna do next, Dr.
1: Yeah. Chen? Yeah, so at least for us, one thing going back to the optic neuritis treatment trial, it was actually a little bit of a surprise. They found that the high-dose IV steroids led to faster recovery, but didn't actually change the ultimate outcome. And so if, if you have a run-of-the-mill optic neuritis attack, you know, like maybe from multiple sclerosis or just something on the more mild end, uh, those IV steroids, we're looking for faster recovery. Or if it's mild, sometimes you can even observe even without treatment in some regards. The only drawback is you don't know which patient might have NMO or MOG, one of these words, you probably do need the steroids. So now we're kind of leaning toward treating any severe optic neuritis attack. And I think we've always treated any severe transverse myelitis attack. Um, But so essentially, we're treating with steroids, we want to see a little bit of faster recovery. And if it's severe and they're not responding again, we don't know if that patient might have NMO which sometimes you might need more in steroids, like plasma exchange. So if I've got a patient with really severe optic neuritis, we're talking about you know, where they can only count fingers. We give them five days of IV steroids and they're still not turning around. That's usually when we're heading on plasma exchange um, because I'd like to have some response. And then plasma exchange is essentially where we're hooking up the patient either through a peripheral line or a central line, taking their blood, and trying to wash out the pathologic antibodies and giving them back plasma to try and get rid of those pathologic antibodies. So essentially, we'll try the steroids first usually, and then go to plasma exchange if there's no response.
0: Okay. And that plasma exchange, is that just in the disorders that are antibody-based, like MOG and NMOSD, or is that also used in transverse myelitis, ADEM, that kind of thing? Dr. Satutris?
2: Yeah, no, it's a Great question, and there's there's one one important issue here is that we don't really know. There haven't been really trials in general. There's really only a single what we call sham-controlled trial, where half of the patients with a, a severe demyelinating attacks got flex, and the other half got a sham procedure, and then were crossed over to active treatment. Generally, it is thought that it may, like, there's a good rationale in, in disorders that are associated with an underlying pathogenic autoantibody, like MOG or NMO with aquaporin 4 antibodies. However, there is literature about producing plasma exchange and multiple sclerosis, where at least to our knowledge, there is no clear pathogenic autoantibody that's been reported. But so in that setting, generally, I would say that this is an approach that is used regardless often of the underlying disease. And the other thing is also that when patients are coming in, especially for the first time, we often really don't know, because you send these antibodies, they can sometimes take a week or two to come back. And so when you're making this decision to use Plex or not, you're kind of taking into account the severity, you're taking into account whether you think it might end up being one of those conditions, but you don't really know. And I also have used plasma exchange. I mean, MS is Typically, attacks at, at least are often less severe than MOG and NMO, Although we don't know, long-term MS can can be associated with severe disability due to progressive disease and other underlying features. But often, MS relapses can be quite severe and quite variable. And we often have used plex with in our our mind a good response from the patient. So I would say that it can be used potentially for for regardless of the underlying etiology. Although I still think that we need to do more studies in order to better understand which subgroups may benefit more and also what the timing is to implement this intervention because there's a lot of variability in practice. Some people might do PLEX four weeks after the patient first came in and give the steroids a full month to see if they work. Some people might say, okay, we're going to go to PLEX day one together with the steroids and I have to say, we don't really know is the is the short answer here. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, variability in how people practice. And while Plex is generally relatively safe, it is a procedure that requires often insertion of what's called a central venous catheter, which is a a catheter into one of the large veins, typically in the neck. That procedure can be associated with infection, with bleeding, with, with severe complications, very rarely, generally it is safe. And then the procedure itself can predispose somebody to bleeding complications, even allergic reactions can sometimes occur and other issues, low blood pressure during the procedure. So while it is kind of something that you could say, oh, well, let's just do it and see what happens. I mean, there are significant potential risks associated with it as well as as costs and potentially having to keep somebody in the hospital for, for a prolonged period of time a lot of logistical issues that go into that
0: that makes sense is there anything that's known about why plex works in these disorders what what specifically is happening and and why it works for some people and not others uh, dr chen
1: yeah, I, it's it's hard to know exactly how it works. Again, the easy answer is it's removing pathologic antibodies. But as Dr. Sartuku said, you know it seems to work for multiple sclerosis as well, which isn't thought to be primarily an antibody mediated process. So it's probably have multiple ways that plasma exchange is helping. but certainly, it, it does seem to there's unfortunately one randomized clinical trial that shows that it worked, but we've got a lot of retrospective observational studies suggesting that early plasma change leads to much, much better outcomes. Um, again, the exact mechanisms is still a little unclear, but it, it seems to be associated with better outcomes. But we, I think we really do need more randomized clinical data to to kind of prove that it truly works, one, uh, in what settings, what diseases, and, and the timing, I think, is are all critical to, to kind of getting a better understanding of how plasma exchange works.
0: Got it. Thank you. And so after you decide, okay, we're going to administer plasma exchange or not, I guess, what would be the next step? Is there IVIG or anything else? And how do you evaluate, I guess, how, how the patient is doing? Um, Dr. Chen?
1: Yeah, usually with Plasma Exchange, um, we're going to give them five treatments or seven treatments every other day. That's kind of the standard treatment. And to my to me, that's usually our, our biggest gun. So usually after Plasma Exchange, I, I wait and see how they do. Occasionally, you can add on IVIG acute treatment with IVIG as well to see if that might help some more, but it's hard to know if that's truly helping, or if that's just a plasma exchange that's kind of taking more time to have an effect. So again, usually in a setting of severe optic neuritis, it's going to be IV steroids, then plasma exchange, or sometimes both together if it's very severe and I'm really suspicious of NMO. And then I'm going to give it time and hopefully they turn around. But certainly acute IVIG treatment is certainly an option in some patients too.
0: Dr. just any anything to add?
2: No, I I mean, I, I agree completely. I think that there's always a, it's always very uncomfortable as a clinician to see that you've done steroids and flex and patients not improving. But I mean, we know that with longer time out from the optic neuritis, potentially, again, an optic neuritis can recover in like slowly on its own as well. Like that's what the optic neuritis treatment trial showed us, that even the people who didn't get steroids potentially at a year out, we're kind of similar to the people who got steroids. So while there's this temptation to kind of throw everything and, uh, at the patient and try to salvage as best you can the situation, I think we have to be aware of the risks associated with kind of escalating to more and more, or sometimes there's a temptation to let's do another pulse of steroids. And again, steroids, as I said, relatively safe, but you can have complications, including rare complications that Dr. Chen mentioned. So I think that this, this, this potential of doing more can have harms. I mean, the IVIG question I think is is interesting. It's it's one of those things that there's a there's not clear evidence to necessarily support doing flex and then doing IVIG afterwards. The only situation where I may consider that is in patients who I am suspicious for are known to have MOG antibody disease, because there I might start the IVIG and then actually continue it. As a maintenance treatment for relapse prevention, potentially. So I I might try to get a, a dose loaded after the flex in order to kind of then plan with the plan though to continue it then as a maintenance treatment in a patient.
0: Got it. In terms of timeline for acute treatments, is there a specific time cutoff where you would say, okay. We're not going to administer any more treatments. It's been too far from the attack. Do you have to look for markers of inflammation still? What, what's what's the process for that, Doctor Satyros? Yeah,
2: that's a that's a great question, and I think it's difficult sometimes. I mean, sometimes we I do use some information for whether there is ongoing inflammation or activity that could kind of help guide me for whether in rare cases to do maybe a second round of steroids or something like that, like situations where I might consider that is if let's say the patient had an initial improvement, but then worsened again, then you could argue that maybe this is kind of a a second relapse or a worsening of the flare rather than kind of the natural history of worsening and then getting better after treatment. So in that situation where I'm kind of convinced that there's been kind of a setback, it might consider like retreating or escalating or something like that, as you mentioned. So that's from a clinical perspective, I would say. From a kind of paraclinical perspective of trying to use tests or markers or things like that, I mean, generally things that might aid is is kind of a repeat MRI, for example. But I have to say the enhancement often can persist even with a kind of just a normal attack, which is improving. And so it's difficult to kind of put a lot of weight on that. But let's say that the lesion looks worse or it's expanded, especially in the spinal cord, or you have a new area that's enhancing that wasn't enhancing previously. One might argue there that, oh, maybe there is kind of some process that is is still present that maybe I need to intervene upon separately. And then there could be very rare, rare cases. This is not very typical for transverse myelitis where patients are having kind of these stuttering courses and worsening and multiple enhancing the spinal cord. And one last option that we didn't mention previously that very rarely we may use, and I would say that even for this, that the data is certainly not there, would be something called IV cyclophosphamide, but that is also kind of a treatment with even more risks than the ones that we've already discussed. That would be really mainly considered for transverse myelitis that is severe and, and worsening but there is evidence that, I mean, that that can cause a whole whole host of side effects. It can completely suppress the kind of bone marrow production of white blood cells for months and severely immunosuppress someone. There's even some literature that it can affect neural precursor cells in the central nervous system and affect the healing process as well. So that's something that I generally do not use, although I know that some people may use it, and historically it was used somewhat in refractory cases of transverse myelitis.
0: Got it. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And, and in terms of, you know, how late is too late? That's, it's always a good question. We recently did a, a multi-center international study where we looked at, and this is a retrospective, about 400 optic neuritis attacks treated with plasma exchange. And, you know, as all these observational studies suggest, earlier is better. Uh, but we did have some patients that were treated, you know, one month out, six weeks out. And some patients still had what looked like an improvement of a response to it, even, you know, as as late as a month, six weeks. So, you know, if you've got a patient with a bad bout of optic neuritis, or transverse myelitis, and you're seeing them now, six weeks later, the question, or a month later, can you, can you do plasma exchange and maybe potentially squeeze a little bit more improvement out? I'd say probably. Chances are it's not going to come back to normal, but, you know, maybe it might improve. And then we're looking at three months out, then the chance of their recovery from plasma exchange is going to be pretty low, I don't, pretty un, unlikely. And six months would be a definite no. So I think, you know, certainly within six weeks, I would probably consider doing plasma exchange if they haven't recovered with high V steroids. But obviously, some of the studies are suggesting that the earlier the better. But it's hard to know, is that the natural history of disease or is the plasma exchange truly helping?
0: Got it. Thank you. And when we're talking about these treatments are there any age considerations both 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 sides of the spectrum too young too old for any of these dr chen
1: for plasma exchange you know it's a lot of it has to do with access to the veins and so in a Adult who's very healthy, sometimes we can actually do it through a peripheral vein instead of requiring that central vein through central vein access, which increases the risk of the procedures. That certainly weighs in. But then otherwise, you know, there are some very young oral patients that can get plasma exchange. It's just it's access to the venous system. So it makes it a little bit trickier. Whereas with IVIG, that's typically gonna be just through the peripheral IV. So uh, sometimes in kids, we'll lean more toward IVIG just to avoid um, having to worry about access through the central vein for the plex. Um, But certainly there's a lot of centers that do a lot of plex, even in young kids.
0: Got it, thank you. And steroids are safe for, for all ages?
1: That's a good question too. So with with kids, obviously they're growing and a lot of changes their bone development. So we want to limit that as much as possible in children. We also want to be weight-based because a thousand milligrams and, you know, a, 25 year old kid is going to be a lot of steroids so you're going to be weight based when you're young and then when you're older you know there's risks of you know a little bit more slightly higher risks of steroids as well and so again it's it's certainly a consideration a little bit something more we might talk about but we'll still do it at all age ranges there's just a little bit higher risk at the low end and the high end at low end for you know kind of development high end for Maybe heart cardiovascular kind of reasons.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. So these are the main the main treatments that we've gone gone through, and you kind of touched on research that, looking forward, might give us some more ideas into how these how these treatments work, who we should use them on, when time time frames, which diseases, all of that. Dr. Satir-Chos, would you mind talking a little bit about that? There's anything in the pipeline or anything that you're looking forward to in that realm? I think
2: that there's always interest in many different kind of neuroprotective or remyelinating therapies to be studied. I think that the, the pipeline, I mean, if you, there there are many kind of agents that have been proposed in studies that I've been aware of, including studies that unfortunately failed or studies that have shown um, encouraging results. One example of a failed study was uh, a, a, a drug called Opicinumab that targets a factor called LINGO1, and it was proposed to, it was actually tested in a clinical trial in acute optic neuritis to see if this actually targets a target that might be Inhibitory to myelin remyelination, and so the thought was that if we could enhance remyelination in the acute phase of optic neuritis, that that might lead to a better outcome. Again, these studies have been relatively small. It was a phase two study. Some some may say that they maybe the time from onset may have been a little bit too long, potentially for the drug to work, and there are some concerns that maybe that contributed the outcome. But I think that there's there's I've, I've seen other things mentioned, like there's a study of a gold nanoparticle treatment, not necessarily in acute optic neuritis, but I think they have a trial on both acute optic neuritis and chronic optic neuropathy. So there are, there are a variety of things that we have seen in the pipeline and things that have been proposed. Nothing that is currently, to my knowledge, in at least a very advanced phase of development in phase three, but I think that one, one thing in my mind that is important is, that we have all these treatments, as we mentioned previously, and we still don't know how to use them actually. And so like, we keep coming back to these data. We really keep quoting a single randomized controlled trial from the early 1990s to kind of support everything that we're discussing about steroids and optic neuritis. Transverse myelitis, we don't really have treatment, Even, even that like a basic study like that, that is good quality and large in order to support what we're doing. There was an attempt to do an IVIG trial once in the UK. And unfortunately, that there was issues with recruitment that led to that trial not being actually completed. Unfortunately, they were only able to recruit a handful of patients. And so my my focus in terms of, I mean, right now, and this is a study that we're, we're discussing with Dr. Chen and designing together, is to potentially see how we can better understand how to use the treatments that we have now and ways to optimize their treatment. One other thing that we didn't mention about plasma exchange is that while we, we bring it up, it's not really that easily accessible to everyone. So generally, plasma exchange is going to be performed at large tertiary referral centers. It's not something that's going to be very easily accessible to everybody, even across the United States, even less so in developing kind of countries. And so we, we, I think that we need to understand better when to implement these approaches, how to implement these approaches. In, in order to kind of be better able to treat to the treat facts.
0: Got it. Thank you. And Dr. Chen, anything you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Just trying to get a better handle on plasma exchange, I think, is very, very important in terms of timing and which patients would benefit. There's a lot of saying in neurology and ophthalmology that time is brain, time is vision. And again, this is all based on retrospective studies suggesting that early plasma exchange is better, but again, it's not randomized. And the problem is if you've got a patient who comes in at you know pretty bad vision, count fingers vision, even without treatment, they may recover. So if you gave them plasma exchange early on, did they recover because they would have recovered anyway or is the plasma exchange is what turned them around? We've all seen enough cases of plasma exchange really having miraculous recovery. So we do, truly do think it helps. But until we have a randomized trial proving it, it's hard to know. Again, going back to the 80s and early 90s when we did the optic treatment trial, I think the large, vast majority of people would have thought that IV steroids significantly led to better outcomes. And surprisingly, it really didn't. What it did was speed and recovery. And so, we've, if we have a treatment like plasma exchange that we think works but is actually potentially a little more, it is more aggressive than the IV steroids. We want to know it works, prove that it works before we're administering it to uh, larger and larger number of patients. And yet, um, it's being used more. We actually recently looked. At a large national database, and at least for optic neuritis, it's gone up and up and up in terms of its usage. A good, you know, fivefold over the past ten years in terms of usage for optic neuritis. So it's being used even without the evidence. We just need the evidence to prove it works, or if it doesn't work, to actually only use it for patients that need it, like a patient with NMO. Oh, well, got
0: it. Thank you so much. That's all the questions I have for you, but I really appreciate you joining and sharing your knowledge and expertise and dedicating your time to this. And I, I hope some of this research we talked about will go forward in the future and we can, we can regroup again not too long from now and, and talk about, about the new knowledge we have.
1: Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks. Thank you so much. It
2: was a pleasure to join.
0: Thank you to our 2023 Ask the Expert podcast series sponsors, Amgen, Alexian AstraZeneca rare disease and UCB. Amgen is focused on the discovery, development and commercialization of medicines that address critical needs for people impacted by rare autoimmune and severe inflammatory diseases. They apply scientific expertise and courage to bring clinically meaningful therapies to patients. Amgen believes science and compassion must work together to transform lives. Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and they are committed to ensuring that patient perspective and community engagement are always at the forefront of their work. UCB innovates and delivers solutions that make real improvements for people living with severe diseases. They partner with and listen to patients, caregivers, and stakeholders across the healthcare system to identify promising innovations that create valuable health solutions.